I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the movie, movie lovers. lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we start with the week in review. What TV shows and movies we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main review or topic of conversation. And then finish up with film faves. Our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic often marching back through time. In this episode, the main event will be Andrea Burloff's adaptation of the DC Vertigo comic The Kitchen, starring Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Moss, and Tiffany Haddish. Film faves will be going back to 1982 and 83, our first time we're combining years in film phase. We'll talk more about the reasons for that when we get there. Uh, but first, a little bit of housekeeping. I want to apologize if I sound a little bit off or whatever. This is my first fully functional day, I would say. I've been sick the past several days since Tuesday, which would be exactly a week, hopefully, a week before you are hearing this and uh, it's delayed our recording of this by several days hopefully it will not delay getting this podcast episode to you by as many days but if it is a little bit late you notice in your podcatcher this is why i was knocked out on tuesday uh, i really tried we went to the kitchen let's to see the kitchen i should say on tuesday came home I had the shivers, I had all my muscles ached really badly, I had like a like swollen, um, you know, lymph nodes in the throat area. You know, the man flu. I just, yeah, oh yeah, I had a fever too, right? I was hot to the touch, I was sweaty, mm -hmm. just miserable, and then like the preceding days, or the following days, it turned into like this thing in my throat where it felt kind of like strep throat, so I had to gargle and... It was just not good. I had zero energy. There was one day where you were ready to record, and I was just like, I looked at you with I was like, finally ready before him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had like half the energy. I was like, okay, but if you lead, we could try this. And then uh, ultimately I was like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> so, so hopefully uh, we get the podcast out on time. If not, you know why now. Uh, but now let's get to our week in review. With all that time and all the time since the last episode, we've been able to watch a lot. We had our wedding anniversary and spent some of that time. Uh, <laughs> we went to a fantastic place in North Seattle called Scarecrow Video, which is a kind of a historic library now, right? Yeah, uh, they're classified as a non-profit because that's the only way that they could keep the place going. Uh, they have a lot of volunteers that help run, you know, run the rentals, etc. And it's like movie nirvana. I yeah. mean, it's two floor, two stories packed to the gills of films from all over the world, every well, genre. Yeah, and when they run out of space, they start just having sleeves. So it's oh, walls of DVDs, okay. and then, like, depending on what category they decide to do it with, I think it was reality TV and reality movies, uh, they decided to just put them in sleeves and boxes. Uh, okay. So then you have to flip through things, kind of like you would LPs. Yeah. At any rate, they uh, we ended up 
with stacks of movies that they said, no, you you can only rent 10. I was like, Shannon, we should really pare this down. She's like, let's just go. <laughs> and we ended up renting 10 movies. We couldn't see them all. But we're going to talk about a few of them here uh, in a moment. But, Shanna, you want to talk about one of them that I pretty much slept through. Because uh, you were sick. It's I was, not a boring film. No, no, no. <laughs> I actually liked what I saw, but I yeah. was like, ugh, you know, just out. Uh, so sick. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? The movie is Dare to be Wild from 2015. This is a triple F rated film. It was one of the films that I regretted not seeing when we made the F rated list for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I really loved this film. It was worth the wait. You cannot find this film anywhere for digital renting. Uh, you have to go somewhere where there's like a physical store. So it's not available to rent on Amazon even? No, it's not. Wow. I think if you have a UK account, you can rent it. Mm. Uh, but but otherwise, no. And to clarify, you said it's triple F rated. It is written and directed by Vivian DeCourcy, who is not someone I'm, I'm familiar with. But uh, it is also stars Emma Greenwell. Mm-hmm. This is a really feel-good, successful, keep determined, you know, be determined kind of movie. If you have forgotten what determination and focus looks like, then go ahead and watch this. It's about the true story of Mary Reynolds defying the odds to compete in the Chelsea Flower Show, a pretty prestigious garden design competition uh, in England, and we get to see her you know come up against all these issues and roadblocks and it's what's really nice about it is she's actually not getting in her own way it's outer elements that are in her way like she has to have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar sponsorship and you know she goes on a talk show like a radio show she eventually gets the money uh you know and it's a true story, so it's not really a spoiler, but, you know, she, she achieves her dream. And it's really, it's, it feels so good to watch this film. And it doesn't kind of, like, knock you down. It's kind of like a, a nice observation of, okay, there she is. Oh, she's got this roadblock. Oh, she, she got through it. So it's inspirational. Yeah. And that's kind of all I have to say about it. Hmm. I really enjoyed it, and I, it's probably one that I'll buy at some point. Yeah, I'll, I'll chip in my two cents for what it's worth, considering how much I got to see of the film. I will say it's an absolutely gorgeous film, and I will say that the lead uh, is is really good in it. I, I really liked her. I don't know if I've seen her in anything else, but I like to. And, you know, I, it did feel really long uh, for the stretch of time I did see the film, and there are certain things that, like, were obstacles, I mean, there's things that happen that didn't have any, like, greater consequence that, you know, I don't necessarily think were necessary in the film. You know, it could have tightened things up a little bit, but it seemed like a really lovely film. I really liked it. I No, don't take away anything. Yeah, I look uh, forward to seeing that in full uh, sometime. Again. So that was Dare to be Wild. Awesome. So next, we saw several films together the first one i thought i'd talk about is keep of good hope this was also a south african film that you wanted to show us that you had seen what is this from like 2001 or something 
This is from 2004. And tell us a little bit about it. I got to watch this when I lived in South Africa, and I really enjoyed it uh, when it first came out. And then I saw that Scarecrow video had it. So I decided that we would watch it because we've been talking about going to visit South Africa and I thought we would show it to our son as well. Yeah. Because it really gives you a, a look into what the the complexity and the nuances of the culture that is South Africa, uh, it, it gives you an insight to that. It follows three women, a white woman living off of her trust fund and giving back to the community and helping look after shelter animals Mm -hmm. uh, ranging from dogs to a snake very fun and then we get to follow a cape colored woman who is having difficulty getting pregnant and then we follow a black corsa woman who is trying to she's trying to take an exam to get a new qualification so she can get out of the cycle of poverty Mm-hmm. And we get to see what all three of these women are dealing with, not only dealing with the issue that they're going through, but also how each one of these women are treated in mm-hmm. this country uh, based on their skin color, I, f- I think, is um, one thing that I interpreted from this film. Uh, there's oh, a couple, I think very, very clearly. There's a couple of, you know, hilarious moments, and there's a couple of like, oh, yeah, that's why I left South Africa. It's really interesting, and I think it really gives you a look into what it's like in the country. It all happens in Cape Town. It... Well, um, not exactly, right? Because, like, it's outside of Cape Town. Well, maybe there's a little you, bit happening outside of Cape Town. I'm not really sure where. But yeah, you don't really actually get to see much of Cape Town itself, no. the city. And a lot, there's, you know, a couple of these actors and actresses have been in South African soapies, mm. the stories. And so it's it's really fun to see them again. And I thought the acting was really good. I thought the story was good. The only thing that could have been done better is at the end we see where two of the characters end up, but not where the third one ends up. Mm. So I recommend this film if you want to know a little bit more about South Africa. Well, if I may, since you were showing the film to me and our son i would say this is probably the most authentically south african film i have seen not that i've seen dozens of south african films or anything but this one really really does show a lot of what i've experienced personally and and learned about south africa it's it's really kind of cool like being able to watch the movie and be like this is how that is that's exactly how that is there and that's exactly how that is there and Mm -hmm. you know from the townships to i don't know uh, what do you call taxis and everything you know there's so many little nuances and elements that are so truthful to the country you know and uh, and and the living experience there yeah you know to, to how dangerous and stupid it is for a white woman to walk into a township at night you know mm-hmm. all these kinds of things i really enjoyed this movie i think it's oh, not it's not a great film i think there's um there's th- some things here and there about it that could have been stronger but you know i might have been a little predictable and stuff like that here and there but uh quite enjoyable and i'm really glad that you showed us well and it's also nice to see something that isn't taking place during apartheid mm-hmm. um, that's true it's nice to see, okay, what about post-apartheid? Yeah. You know? Yeah. What does it look like 
That's a really good point because I think aside from Sotsi, I haven't seen really much. Like everything else is about Mandela or something or around Vito that time. Or... Yeah, Cry Freedom, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that, that was a really great one. I, I really enjoyed seeing that. The next movie that we watched was, we, we, we touched a little bit more on filling in Shanna's David Lynch Yes, so we went to that section of the video store Yes, and I kind of went through and I was like, okay, let's grab this one, this one, because they have sections by director, uh, director, which Mm -hmm. is really lovely. So we saw his directorial debut, uh, Eraserhead, for the first time for me as well as for Shanna. Uh, Shanna, uh, how would you describe this film and (laughs) what would you think of, of this? Okay, so this film is very David Lynch and for people that, you know, might not know, that means it's really bizarre, really difficult to explain with a lot of beautiful shots and, you know, really well-crafted shots. Yes. And like pristine framing, symbolism upon symbolism. I I mean, it's like... It's practically an art film. It's the inception of symbolism. (laughs) You've got all these different layers. Essentially, we get insight into what it's like being a new parent. Never From a mind, male perspective. Yeah. Never mind an unexpected new parent. Uh-huh. So I feel like at times it's an illustration of those first few days, the lack of sleep, which I think David Lynch went ahead and kind of turned into hallucinations and had fun with it. Yeah. I don't know if he has kids, but if I don't he... either. You would think, because this feels in a, in a way of like a very personal film. It really does, uh-huh. because I don't know, I'd like to hear how you related to it, but how I related to it was like, oh my God, that's so going to happen to us. Where it's like, I'm going to be the one that can't sleep if the baby is even just breathing. Mm. You know, and I know that I'm going to be the one that's going to be incredibly exhausted and take on too much. Mm. And like the dude is just going to like be like, huh, what happened? What's going on? I didn't hear anything. You know, so, okay, tell me what you think. Okay, so first of all, I really hope that's not the case. (laughs) We're so I, I, I just really briefly, I'll say because we have several films to get to. I I appreciate what this movie's going for. I appreciate how in in a very odd way how personal it is. I appreciate how it's trying to express parenthood, fatherhood, in particular. And the anxieties that could come with that. But this movie was fucking bizarre. Like it was. I, it was, this is, we've talked about David Lynch before. This is what he's known for. Yeah. But it's not my bag. This is Lynch as, almost as Lynchian as he ever gets. This is fucking bizarre. And so it <laughs> almost checked me out. It was so weird. So weird. And I was not a huge fan of it. Although I do understand, I, huh. To the extent that I can understand <laughs> what he's going for, and I understand that there's a lot of artistry to it, but there's so much stuff that there's, I can't make sense out of. What the hell is going on on the screen? It's just such a weird movie. I think the best way to look at it is like, okay, what's what is the obvious thing he's trying to tell us, and then oh, he's trying to tell us what it's like being a parent yeah. in the most bizarre possible way right yeah 
Uh, so, but it sounds like you liked it more than me. You enjoyed it a little bit. I liked it. I don't need to see it again. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's like a one-time film for me. It's also shot yeah. in black and white. One time. So yeah, yeah. So then we went from there all the way to 1999's The Straight Story. Which is yeah. the very opposite end of the Lynchian spectrum. That was a good one to round it off with. Uh, this was a Disney film, rated G, about a real story of, uh, of a man, Alvin Strait, who uh, trekked across state lines to get to his brother, who he is estranged from for several years. Who he learns is about to die. And he also learns that he's not in the best of health either. And because he's not in the best of health, he can't just drive. So he uh, hooks up his his uh, lawnmower, his riding lawnmower. And he uh, rides along uh, to get to his brother via lawnmower with trailer. This starred Richard Farnsworth in his final role. He himself was of ailing health. And uh, later committed suicide after the film. Xiao, you have now seen a good handful of Lynch's work. How did you feel about the straight story and how that fits into everything? So I think that something that David, we all know David Lynch is really good at symbolic, well-framed, pristine filmmaking, okay? But he's also so freaking good at telling a story. Mm. And I think the way he told the story was really beautiful. The way there's one scene in particular that really stands out to me. It's a conversation between our main character and another man who comes over and says, hey, can I take you out for a beer when his lawnmower, you know, his John Deere breaks down uh-huh. and needs some repair. They go to a bar and they end up talking about their World War II experience. Yeah. And while they're talking about this, they uh, David Lynch has like put in some sound that kind of very subtly is like the you know what we hear normally when someone talks about war the and the plane and right. whatever you some know all these sounds. yeah so this this talk gives me this stronger realization of what men went through mm. when they were in the war and how it was when they got back. Yeah. And they talk specifically about losing friends. My face gets old and my buddy's faces stay young. Mm. I I think I think about all the years I have gained and all the years they have lost. Is the most beautiful part of this movie. Like I have never seen a movie where men talk like that about that topic. Mm. And they like they're tearing up yeah. at the bar and it's okay. And no one is poking fun at them or anything like that. It's just this very secure bubble that's been created of safety. And I think David Lynch needs to make more. Yeah, I will say that this is probably my favorite David Lynch film, although I'm looking forward to rewatching The Elephant Man soon. I Mm. haven't seen that in a very long time. I think it's his most sentimental film, his most heartfelt and beautiful film. Call me square, but this is the David Lynch I love, honestly. And Richard Farnsworth is really, really touching in it. The writing is beautiful. I, I really love the straight story, and I think not enough people are aware of it or or uh, have seen it. Of of all the Lynch, and, you know, everybody talks about Blue Velvet 
you know, people talk about Mulholland Drive, but mm-hmm. the straight story is one that really needs more attention. So I, agree. I recommend checking that out. We have two more films to talk about. So the next one, moving away from David Lynch, is I Shot Andy Warhol from oh. 1997, I believe, by Mary Heron, who went on to direct American Psycho. That's where she got most uh, famous or notoriety. This is about Valerie Solaris, who's this self-proclaimed she's not even she's like an extreme feminist who believes that men should be wiped off the face of the earth essentially because women are the superior uh race so to speak or species that men are actually an anomaly and she gets all like she becomes tied up so to speak or or familiar with Andy Warhol and the factory and all that in in New York. And, uh, well, you know, it's called I Shot Andy Warhol for a reason. And it kind of sets that stage right up front in the beginning. Lily Taylor plays Val. Jared Harris, who went on to Mad Men and many other things, plays Andy Warhol. Shanna? What did you think of Andy Warhol? Andy Warhol. All I shot Andy Warhol. This is a film I thought you might find pretty interesting. I thought you might find Val to be a, a, an interesting character. A hero. Not necessarily a hero. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no. Okay, I don't nobody think... get upset. No, no, no. All right. <laughs> I don't think anybody could claim she's a hero. I had a hard time with this movie. It was too long for the intensity that is Valerie. Huh. It, it's just, you know... We all go through different levels, uh, stages of feminist, and that kind of feminist, like, while I completely understand, and that is one that's really toxic. And it's yeah. like, it, and you can link it to feminist, you know, it's not just her personality, you're linking it with feminist feminism. And it, it's just, it, it's kind of like a, like you have feminism and then you have different things that come from it and this is a thing that can come from it is like the toxic side of it mm. so if you go too far so i liked seeing the factory i went through a factory stage where even for my 21st we had a factory room That's we awesome. set it up with space blankets it was really fun nice did you like seeing all the characters represented in the factory? Yeah, because I, rec- I recognized e- Edie Sedgwick, mm. and that was really fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just I had a hard time with this film. Near the end of it, I was ready to throw something. So <laughs> so that's really surprising. It's only a 90-minute movie. I think it's less than that, technically. I didn't expect that. I think the first, ha- the first act is a little rough. I think that it probably could have dived a little bit more into what made Val the way she is. Yeah, I you would know, have appreciated I think it's a little that. on the surface about that. You get a hint of it, mm-hmm. you know, some lip service to her past. Uh, it would have been interesting because she is one strange cookie. Like she is n- the kind of person who you don't quite feel comfortable being in the presence of. You know that they're a little bit off. Mm. They kind of like talk a mile a minute and they have very, very extreme thoughts and they're very pushy and very needy too. You know, she's that kind of a person. Like she'll ask Andy 
about producing a play and before he even agrees to produce it she'll ask for an advance just because she needs money you know all she's yeah so she's very determined and i feel like she could have plugged in somewhere else and been you know supported like oh hey this is a very kooky idea let's let's do a play of it let's give it a shot you know yeah i feel like she needed to be somewhere else she wanted to create a revolution though she didn't want to be like just another facet of society she's very much anti-society really she stood she was on the fringes that's why she wasn't didn't have a job or anything i will say a lily taylor great performance as valerie she's fantastic one of her best performances and b steven dorf as candy Oh, God, that, I was going to say, that was the best part of the movie was Candy. Yes, he is great. I don't think he got enough praise for his performance. Candy, who is a trans woman who befriended Andy and, and the whole factory and, and Chelsea Hotel, uh, that whole scene in New York. And, you know, Lou Reed references Candy in one of his songs and everything like he is fantastic as Candy, really. He's great, and it is almost worth seeing the movie alone. Just for, for Candy. Yeah. It was so fun because there was a scene where Valerie is like, let's act this out, and Candy is one of the characters. Right. And, like, the the dialogue is so shit. And Oh, Val's but, play. Oh, Val's play. Yeah. But Candy makes it amazing. Yeah. And I'm like, give that girl every movie she wants to be in. Just right. give her everything. Yeah. And it was just, oh God, it was so divine watching yeah. Candy. Yeah. Candy, darling. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say about it is I think Jared Harris's Andy Warhol is one of the better portrayals of Andy Warhol I've seen on film. I've seen a lot of superficial depictions of Andy Warhol some kind of like um i don't know very hokey and i liked his the best out of um, the ones i can remember having seen and it's a very young early jared harris performance which is really interesting mm. considering he's done a lot this decade anyway so that's i shot andy warhol by mary heron from 1997 and lastly we finally caught up with an early peter dinklage film from 2003 called The Station Agent, which stars Patricia Clarkson, one of Shanna's favorites. I love that woman. And Bobby Cannavale. And Dinklage plays a guy who inherits a, a, like a train station in like a small town. And he goes to move in there. And he's, he's he trying... He thinks it's going to be great because he thinks he's going to be isolated. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it turns out Bobby Cannavale, who's got a, like a, a food truck, basically, and he, he parks his food truck outside that station. Uh, the dude wants to be friends, and he will not leave Dinklage's uh, character, <laughs> Finn, alone. Shannon, what did you think of The Station Agent? I had a good time with this film. I loved seeing adults try to make friends. I don't think that gets represented enough in film, or at least now that I know how hard it can be to make friends as adults, I feel like it's especially important to depict. And it did a great job. I mean, especially the being there during the hard times, Mm. even though our friends may push us away. 
And I think that's what really makes it hard being adults trying to make friends. When you're kids, you don't really have a lot going on. Mm-hmm. In your life. Yeah. The, you, you don't have to make the mortgage and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But each one of these characters is going through something difficult, a challenge of some kind. And we get to see how that affects them trying to make friends and the ripple effects of it too. Yeah. It was interesting having been Game of Thrones fans and, and you know, I've seen Dinklage since Elf, which apparently came out the same year as the station agent. I always uh, liked him. It's interesting seeing him in his, his breakout role, critically anyway. And I thought he was great as this very closed off person who really doesn't say much. He does want, he does enjoy his time alone reading and doing whatever. And Bobby Cannavale, who's also in his uh, very early role for him as well, he's always just like, he, he seems, whether the guy, the character ends up being a jerk or not, he seems to always play this very outgoing, gregarious characters, you know? These big characters. And he's not really any different here, except he's not a jerk pers- uh, in any stretch of the imagination. He's just very friendly, and he just... He's like a puppy dog sometimes, yeah. you know, always there to to greet you and uh, always say bye, whether or not you're inviting that you yeah. know, or not, you know. So and Patricia Clarkson is Patricia Clarkson. She's great. So it's really like the story is really focused on these three roles, these three performances, and it does carry the film very well. Tom McCarthy is the guy who wrote and directed the film, and I can see he's come a long way from that film to 2010's Win-Win with Paul Giamatti to 2015's Spotlight, which is just an extraordinary film. Uh, You could see in The Station Agent, this guy has something, and he was definitely a director to watch out for at that time, and he definitely proved himself uh that to be the case over time so uh appreciated the stage agent i wouldn't say i loved it or will trip over myself over it like it seems like its feedback was at the time it was a highly critically praised uh film at that time but uh, it sounds like we both did enjoy it yeah and that finally concludes the week in review and now we're on to the main event which is our review of the kitchen. Times change. You do what you gotta do. From kids. Most employers don't want mothers. It's a competitive market. You don't know me. For money, you survive. Now might be the time. For what? For you. Our husbands have 24 months left on their sentences. Sorry, baby. This is the Irish mob, organized crime. We're gonna take care of you. You girls are gonna be just fine. We got no money. Can't even make the rent with what they gave me last night. They didn't want me in the family in the first place. 40 years we pay protection and we don't get nothing for it. They have been telling us forever that we are never gonna do anything but have babies. Bunch of men that have forgotten what family means. So we remind them. You look pretty, Mama. Pretty doesn't matter. It's just a tool women use. What? Anything we want. What do you want? We are going to have crews everywhere. I can see you got brains, and I know you got money. But we got one thing. 
that you don't. We got criminals. I told you we can't go around working for a bunch of women. You are not smarter than me. I will wipe you off the face of the earth. I don't want you to do it. I want you to teach me how to do it. Just to be clear, now we run this neighborhood. Step off my business. Baby, it's my business now. They're gonna swallow this entire city. You go to war, there's no coming back. Alfonso Coretti wants to talk. If we go to Brooklyn, we're dead. What do you wear to something like that? You get dressed up? Are you kidding? What? My God, I lost count again. <laughs> That's from the trailer for The Kitchen, directed by Andrea Burloff, starring Melissa McCarthy, Tiffany Haddish, and Elizabeth Moss. IMDb describes The Kitchen's plot as thus. The wives of New York gangsters in Hell's Kitchen in the 1970s continue to operate their husbands' rackets after they're locked up in prison. Based on the graphic, uh, it's a comic book series? Graphic novel, I never got a chance to research it, but it's by Ollie Masters and Mean Doyle, two creators I am not familiar with. Uh, Probably should say up front, I'm not familiar with this comic at all, never heard of it before, Shanna. I'm not familiar with it either. All right, so we kind of went in blind for the most part. You know, the movie is all we know. We have nothing to compare it to. One of the first times we could say that about a comic uh, uh, adaptation. But when we review a film, we like to first focus on the good, what we liked about a movie, and then move on to the bad, what we didn't like about a movie. Being before we finish off with spoilers and final thoughts about a film. Um, and of course, all the while weighing whether or not the good outweighed the bad. So, Shanna, this was one of your most anticipated movies of the summer, possibly of the year. I'd have to go back and listen to the 2019 preview episode. But I guess the question is. Did the kitchen live up to your expectations? And what did you like about it? So I realized something about myself after watching this film. I I love gangster films. Uh, I love the mob, the mafia films. It's kind of one of my favorite genre films. Mm, okay. Because I feel like they're kind of the crime gods, mm. you know, of crime films and okay. TV. And so... I got really excited when I saw that women were going to take on the roles of leadership in this market. Mm -hmm. And I got really excited and I was hoping to see, I don't know what I was hoping to see, but I was hoping it would make my dreams come true because when I was a kid, I loved The Godfather so much that I forced, not forced, but invited my brother and cousins to make our own gangster mafia film. Oh, fun. I think mafia is more appropriate given what we did. And that's how much I loved those things. And women were never represented. The only woman, you know, mafia gang representation was Bella Mafia. And all their husbands and children got killed 
and like they're just left there mm. they don't i don't think they continue anything okay so was i hoping for a lot with this film yes was i satisfied more or less okay more or less okay let's talk about what parts satisfied you okay so I love the female cast. I did feel empowered after watching this film. Okay. Like I had a more, I had more posture. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we got to see all three of the women who were downtrodden in, in their own unique way by their husbands kind of rise from that. Yeah. Which was really interesting. And the best part was seeing, of this film was seeing them each come into their own role within this um within this organization Mm -hmm. i i loved how it ended okay i interesting i loved all the performances and i i loved the characters okay anything else i thought it was just really fun entertainment i don't think i'm missing anything i i will say that you know when we see the husband's being sentenced to prison mm-hmm. elizabeth moss they f- they focus on all three wives and elizabeth moss's face does this really strong but subtle smile yeah. of like relief and yeah. pleasure mm-hmm. and i just i just thought she was offered from handmaid's tale right there because i think she's really good at doing that gotcha so First of all, I will say the, the further away I am from having seen this film, the less I have to say about it. I think it's fine. I don't think it's nearly as bad as the critical consensus would lead you to believe. I don't think it's a terrible movie. I think it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's just and for fun. I, well, <laughs> I think there's elements of the movie that show that Andrea Burloff, who this is... Her first time make, uh, directing a film. She's written the screenplays to World Trade Center and Straight Out of Compton. The latter, especially, I think, was very well done. I think this film shows elements of potential as a director, but she has, a, I don't know, I hope to see her get better and better with each film she directs. Mm. If she continues uh, to direct from here and is given the opportunities too, because I don't, I don't know that the kitchen necessarily is going to be a, a great calling card financially and otherwise. It like debuted at like number seven or something from the weekend, so it's not doing too great. But I like the I like. Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Moss, and Tiffany Haddish. McCarthy might be the weakest of the three here. Tiffany Haddish is definitely the strongest here. She's, you know, she's broken out the past couple years in all these comedic roles since Girls Trip and such. And now here she's showing off some dramatic chops, which I think is going to prove very fruitful in the future. I think whatever you might say about this film, her dramatic performance is definitely something good that comes from it. I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, aside from uh, from that, I don't have a whole lot else to, you know, to, to, to say that in terms of heaping praise on the film. Again, it's just, 
I think it's it's fine. I think it's it's fairly forgettable. This is not a crime or mob classic in the making here. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add before we get into what we didn't like or what didn't work for us? I don't think I have anything extra to add other than it was fun to go watch. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into what didn't work for us. Shanna, what was the bad of the film for you? I really was expecting more violence, and maybe I'm just violent hungry. Like, I, I don't know. Well, the trailer the- definitely gives you that expectation. Yeah, and I always want to, like, defend a film that's showing females in a role that they don't usually do. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe they hired out all the violence and then we didn't have to see all the violence, you know? I, I was expecting more blood. And then when you said it was based on a comic, mm-hmm. then I was like, well, it wasn't comic-y at all. Was was that done on purpose? Is I wish I knew what the comic was like mm-hmm. so that I could like have something to compare to. Well, I've read a, a, a variety of different comic books, and I know that there's definitely just like in any other form there's definitely some that are just straightforward crime uh stories but also if you're selling yourself if you're categorizing yourself as a mob film there's got to be violence it's the mob well it's not let's be clear here this is not a bloodless movie no there's definitely some violence in it i mean heads get well not blown off but there's headshots and other things in the film you know, you just expected an abundance of violence, apparently. I kinda, I kinda you know what did. you wanted? You know what you really needed? What did I and really I need? I really wish you took the time to do this. Scarface from 1983. <laughs> you wanted Scarface. That's what you wanted. Are our woman running the mob? No. In Scarface? No. See, that, that's why. I, like, I wanted it to be different. All right, fine. If I don't, I'm not a fan of remakes, but if someone ever does decide to remake Scarface again... Do it from a female perspective. Do a female Scarface. And all right? maybe then Shanna will be happy. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm missing too. Maybe if women are running it, they're not the ones getting their hands dirty, unless you're. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, look at Elizabeth Moss's character. I know, I know. It came out of my mouth before I thought about it. Yeah. But, you know, out of the three of them, only one is doing like dirty work, and it's because she really wants to. It makes her feel empowered. And Tiffany Haddish's character too, to an extent. I mean, but not like. Not like the violent, right? The work. dirty work. I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's not the muscle. She wants to be definitely the the head. So here's the thing. I think after thinking about the film for a little while, because you know you're watching it and you're like, yeah, this is fine. This this isn't outward out and out terrible or anything. But I think the the film walk away from it. And it's like this is definitely not good, fellas. Like this is not a great crime film and, and what is it that prevents it from being a great crime film well there's certain elements that you know you just can't really pinpoint that it's missing but it's not very it's not uh, necessarily the best constructed in terms of character development or character motivations one character's motivations you don't learn until the last five minutes of the film it's played as a twist so to speak that I don't necessarily think lands as well as it could have. And maybe because we don't necessarily see enough of that character's struggle in the way that she is speaking, mm. too. 
And I think, like, man, Melissa McCarthy's character kind of turns on a dime. She she starts out as kind of this weak, you know, meek little flower, and then all of a sudden she's this tough-talking broad who's going to take over the town. You know, things like that. There's probably, and, and, and again, I don't know, maybe it's stronger in the actual comic book, but here... And there probably could have been a little bit more development. It, it is a short film. It's like 89 minutes long or something like that. And maybe it could have been a little bit longer by about 15 minutes or something. And maybe that would have beefed it up and given it more of an impact. I don't know. Maybe a lot got cut. Maybe uh, pieces got cut that were meant to be in. Maybe. And then I would wonder, well, why would they be cut? It's not like the film's in any any threat of being over two hours or, or too long you know so i don't know i just yeah i just kind of walk away thinking yeah the movie's fine and i don't have a whole lot really to to say about that it's just kind of of a meh kind of feeling i i think you're hitting all the points i i think it would have been great to have seen more backstory of Tiffany Haddish's character just like a couple of clips of you know to put her to put us in her shoes to know where she's coming from to know her end goal okay to see her vision that's that's what how I feel that's how I feel yeah let me ask you this because we are going to be next month focusing on f-rated films of the decade what benefit do you think the story had being written and and told, directed by a woman having that woman's perspective do you think it's affected it in any way and, and and if so how i think it does have a good effect on it because we get to see what it's like being not being our best selves as women due to our husbands from something as disgustingly obvious as beating up your wife domestic violence mm-hmm. to subtly not allowing his wife to control anything within mob business mm-hmm. Melissa McCartney's husband yeah. so I, I think that it does help I think it helps it does feel different I think in the sense that there's certain elements of the film that maybe a male director would be tempted to luxuriate in you know like the cheating husband maybe see more of that or you know some some things that might have a little bit more of a a a gaze to it i was gonna say there's no gaze here yeah which i really fucking appreciate because then i can appreciate everything else Mm -hmm. so i really Mm -hmm. did like that we don't need to be gazy well of course not of course not yeah, I don't know. I I just I, I would like to see what else Andrea Burloff has under her sleeve. Uh, see if she can work from an original script too, and uh, what she can bring to the table. Shanna, do you think the good outweighs the bad in this film? I do think that the good outweighs the bad. I think that people should see this film, especially if they're mob movie fans. Okay. Okay. Um, and if you're even an Elizabeth Moss, Tiffany Haddish, or Stella McCartney fan, you should go watch their work. Do you think that this is essential viewing on any of those levels? I think so. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and what would you rate this out of 10? Uh, maybe a 6. Okay. 
So I think I like the film a little bit less than you after letting it kind of stew in my brain a little bit. I don't think this is essential viewing as a mob film. I think that this is essential viewing for a Tiffany Haddish fans because she is breaking out and doing something different and giving a very strong dramatic performance. I think Elizabeth Moss is probably doing some stuff here that you've probably seen her do elsewhere in some ways, maybe a different ways. And I think there's definitely probably better performances of Melissa McCarthy's uh, too. I'm really like right in the middle. This is a balanced film where it's very much a meh feeling. So I give it a five out of 10. Uh, do we want to talk about anything in spoilers? No, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. Okay, so no spoiler section will be necessary here. Those are essentially our final thoughts on The Kitchen, a film that we were looking forward to and didn't quite meet our expectations as a last hurrah of the summer. But what do you think? Did you see The Kitchen? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now let's move on into Film Faves, one of our favorite segments. So for this time, with Film Phase, we're doing something a little bit different for the first time. We're going to do more than one year. Now here's the reason. We're doing, first of all, 1982 and 1983 as our focus. The reason is we noticed, as opposed to nowadays, where according to Box Office Mojo, there's like over 800 films that are theatrically released a year, Back in the early 80s, there were far less. We're talking 163 in 83 and 132 theatrically released films in 82. So there's a lot less to draw from, right? So that's why I decided, okay, well, let's combine years because even though we're talking about over 100, it's still not a lot to draw from for absolute favorites. Especially with someone like Shanna, who we've been in territory where there's a lot of blind spots. And so there's a lot to, to kind of check out that hasn't been seen. So uh, combining the two years seemed helpful for that. Now, the other challenge we had with these years is there were a lot of blind spots. <laughs> there was a lot of movies that we wanted to check out that we just ran out of time to do, all right? Uh, and this is before we rented all those movies at Scarecrow, I swear. But, uh, you know, so there were several movies, several regrets that we didn't get to catch up with, like Terms of Endearment. I didn't get to show Shanna films like Gandhi, Sophie's Choice, Officer and a Gentleman. Uh, but we did get to catch up with several. Um, and because of our limitation, where I had seen something like, 30 to 60 movies um, each year and she'd only I think it was like 30 films a year I had seen and you had only seen like a combined total of 20 films from both those years so we decided to come up with a combined list this time once again like we did with 1985 and I think 88 before that we have a combined favorites list the first few films will be individual choices as a result of this combined list. But before I dive into that, and Shanna gets us, I think it's Shanna, that'll be getting us started. First, let me share with you a little bit about these years, 1983 and 82. Um, 
First off, 1982, as I said, had 132 theatrically released films. So, Shannon, let's talk about box office, all right? So, the top five films, biggest earning films of that year, were number five, Porky's, the sex comedy, made $105.4 million. Wow. Yeah. Have you seen that film? I have. Is it worth it? It's shocking. Is it worth watching? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> Especially, it, it would be just, a, you'd be pissed. Uh, it's not a good time for Shanna. Number so four. anyone that believes that women should be depicted in a oh, respectful way. I mean, yeah, right. It yeah. would piss them off. I mean, you, you, you talk about male gaze. Yeah. That movie is all about the male so gaze. So if you have no idea Quite what literally. male gaze is, you should go watch that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, literally, the box art is exact. It's male gaze. It's literally a keyhole uh, into a woman's locker room, right? Anyway, super. So that's Porky's. One hundred five point four million dollars. People in nineteen eighty two really had a craving for a sex comedy. Number four was Rocky Three, the one with Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. One hundred twenty four point one million dollars. Number three was An Officer and a Gentleman, the romance film of the year with Richard Gere and Deborah Wiener. A Love Lifts Us Up Where We Belong. Shannon, you didn't get to check that out. $129.7 million. The second highest grossing film by a mile of 1982 was Tootsie. $177.2 million. This makeup already should tell you how different tastes were back then to now. But Shanna, could you guess what the highest grossing movie of 1982 was? I'm going to say... Don't cheat. Is it E.T. or Star Trek 2? You know, it, that's actually a Am really... Am I the wrong year? Or? No, no, no. No, 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 no. I just want to speak to Star Trek 2. That was a really excellent uh, guess. Because Star Trek 2 was number six. Porky's. Oh, no. Made more money than Star the Trek 2, the, the Wrath of Kong. Movie. Yes. Oh, man. That made $78.9 million. Almost $30 million less than Porky's, believe it or not. So, no, it, it is E.T. It is E.T. E.T. made $359.1 million. So, almost, almost double. Tootsie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about 83. All right, the following year. Number five was War Games. Um, by the way, 163 theatrically released films in, in 83. The high, the fifth highest grossing film was War Games with Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy. We caught up with that movie. Um, if you want to see what Seattle looked like, Waterfront Seattle looked Ooh. like before... Everything? Before now? Before everything? Yeah. Like, go and watch that film and you'll be like, oh, what a cute little city. Yeah. It's a trip. Yeah. $79.5 million is what that made. Number five. Number four was Trading Places, which is a comedy with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. You didn't get to check out, surprisingly. $90.4 million. Number three was Flashdance. $92.9 million. Just $3 million more than Trading Places. Number two was, surprisingly, Terms of Endearment, um, $108.4 million. And, Shanna, can you guess what the number one movie of 1983 was? Man. Christmas Story? No, no. Was that that year? Uh, it was. It was oh, that year. Oh, Return of the Jedi? 
It was Return of the Jedi. There we absolutely. Go. But which do you think made more money, Return of the Jedi or E.T.? Uh, um, maybe Return of the Jedi? You would think it would be Return of the Jedi. Because it's the third one, The third one of the Star Wars trilogy. It made $252.5 million. E.T., the year before, outgrossed it by $100 million. Because um, in our E.T. box set, there's a cute little booklet. And in the booklet, it shows... I think they show Yoda... R2-D2 and C-3PO celebrating E.T. It's a little illustration. Yes, yes, yes. And it's essentially George Lucas saying, congratulations, Steven Spielberg, for grossing more than us. Yes, because at that time, E.T. was the highest grossing movie ever. Yeah. Right? So it was so cute. And and that is a reference to, I think, Empire Strikes Back or Star Wars before that. But anyway, yes. So a few more tidbits on these years uh, before we move on to our list. In 1983, there are more films in 83 than any previous year that received an R rating. All right. And, you know, that's kind of reflected uh, a little bit in the top 10. If you look at that, you know, uh, Flashdance and Trading Places are definitely two R rated films. And they made it in the top five. In terms of awards, Terms of Endearment was the movie of 1983, uh, which makes me regret not catching up with that again or revisiting that. I haven't seen that in so long, I barely remember it. You've never seen Terms of Endearment, the James L. Brooks film, right? No. It won. It swept most of the major five awards. It just lost Best Actor to Robert Duvall of Tender Mercies, which was also a film uh, nominated for Best Picture. Jack Nicholson did win also for Best Supporting Actor for that film. In terms of 1982... Gandhi was the film of 1982. It won Best Picture, also Director, Actor, and Screenplay, of course. That's a film I think is one of the most inspirational films I've ever seen. Now let's let's talk a little bit about some uh, relationships here uh, and you figure out if you could figure out what these people have in common. Okay, so what, Shanna, does John Cusack, Nicole Kidman, Rob Lowe, Ray Liotta, Kirstie Alley, Gary Oldman, Gina Davis, Angelina Jolie, and Antonio Banderas all have in common. Well, I don't think they were born. Okay. So it must be a breakout role. Debut roles. Debut role. They all had debut roles in 83 and 82. Uh, I think the most notable of those would be Gina Davis and Tootsie in 82. And uh, Kirstie Alley in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, also in 82. And uh, I've never heard of this film. It's worth noting Angelina Jolie's first role was in a film called Looking to Get Out in 82. She must have been very young, like seven years old at that time. And, of course, there's also the Fast Times at Ridgemont High debuts of Nicolas Cage and Eric Stoltz. How about this? What does Jonah Hill, Felicity Jones, Mila Kunis, Greta Gerwig, Emily Blunt, Tessa Thompson, Seth Rogen, Elizabeth Moss, Anne Hathaway, Alison Brie, and Kirsten Dunst have all in common. That is a really nice group of people. They were all Isn't born. It? They are all born in 82 and 83. So uh, they're just that much younger than me and that much older than you. It's kind of cool to see. It's, it's a fantastic... A lot of awesome births came out in the early 80s, it seems, yeah. we're, we're finding. So that's uh, kind of the tidbits 
on these two years to give you some context. Shanna, why don't you get us started with our number 12 favorite movie of 1982 and 83 our number 12 is from 82 it is annie the musical oh my god tomorrow tomorrow i love you tomorrow uh the musical about annie and her hope of finding her parents during the great depression she gets to stay with uh she is in an orphanage but she gets to stay with a millionaire oh no i'm sorry a billionaire (laughs) holy cow during the Great Depression, uh, she, she gets to stay with Mr. Warbucks for a whole week, mm. and uh, that's going to help his help improve his image. So, you know, when I was reading about it again to remind myself, I you know, hearing that he was a billionaire totally explains why his why his house looked the way it did. I'm surprised that they're talking in terms of billionaires. Yeah, I don't know. And this is not the remake. This is the... This is the original. Okay, all right. Yeah, because I could see in the remake they upped it to a billionaire. Okay. That's interesting. Man, yeah, that's a lot of money back then, hey? So the remake should have had a trillionaire. Right, yeah. they They messed that up. So... The movie has so many stars. Miss Hannigan as Carol Burnett. I always used to pretend I was her because there's a scene where she's just so beautifully dramatic and she's singing the little girl's song and Mm. she's pouring stuff into her bath. It turns out she's pouring alcohol into her bath. So things I didn't know. But I would always have so much fun imitating her. And I would sing the song as well. And then, oh my God, another favorite of mine is Tim Curry. Oh, he's in the movie. He's in it. I completely forgot he was in it until I watched it again a couple years ago. And I was like, what the fuck? That is so exciting. (laughs) You know, and and he's just, he's this character that's a con man, but he's so freaking deliciously overdramatic. And I'm like, what the fuck? Because he's just really crazy. And he's just a fabulous man. He's actually a bad guy, but he's just so fabulous in this role. I really, really wish that I saw more of Tim Curry. I love that man. And that was your first individual pick that made the list. That's not a movie I'm a, a fan of, but it was it ranked high enough on, on your individual list to make it onto our combined list. And, and for my pick, my individual pick, was a movie I could swear I'd shown you. A couple years ago. Oh my gosh, we but go through this every time. Apparently not, and and that needs to be remedied, and it's a shame that it didn't get to be remedied before we recorded. It is a very unique Disney film by Carol Ballard from 1983 called Never Cry Wolf, which is based on the book by Farley Mowat about his experience uh, being charged by the uh, Canadian government to study the wolves in northern Canada to prove that the wolves are the cause of the the decline in antelope population or caribou population I should speak I should say it is such a gorgeous film it's a spare film there's there's long stretches where there's not really any dialogue there's maybe some voiceover by Charles Martin Smith, who plays the lead character. Brian Dennett, he has a small part in it as well. There's some funny bits in it too, but it's just a, a, a beautiful, heartaching story that is very much 
like lives and breathes in nature and and brings about a certain appreciation for elements of nature that may get a bad rap you know uh in our collective consciousness too so I love Never Cry Wolf. It's an unfortunately forgotten film in Disney's oeuvre. It's worth checking out if you can find it. Our number 10 is The Secret of Nim, and you'll be pleased to know that it's available to stream on Prime or Hulu. This is a Don Bluth film and is about the determined Mrs. Frisbee facing fears and the unknown to fight for her children's lives. We also learn about the rats of Nim and what that secret really is. This is a darker film than you might be used to in Mm -hmm. animation Mm -hmm. and it's a little scarier than your average animation film. Remember, this is Don Bluth, so think American Tale, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Spoiler, the dogs go to heaven. I just realized they die. Um, Oh, my God. So it's a really great film. I love it. It's one of those films that's like, oh, if we did a list about great mothers, mother characters, she would be the you know on my list that's that's fair that was your uh your individual pick a film that i have mixed feelings about is don blue's first film as a director beautiful in some ways very different from the the book uh, uh, mrs uh frisbee and the rats of nim for some reason they changed her name in the movie to mrs brisbee there's a lot of things that don't oh, make i'm sense saying frisbee and right. it's actually brisbee in the movie yeah oh it's weird right whoops yeah well Whatever. Well, it's very confusing. But Dom DeLuise is adorable as a crow in that. And, oh my god, yeah. I love that man. There's some strengths, and, and, but I, yeah, yeah, it's I, it's it's worth recommending and checking out. But it is during that dark period of animated films for sure. Even Disney was kind of dark. What do you think time. was going on? Um, it could be a reflection of what was going on in that time and people's mindsets. I have no idea, honestly. People were being a little more daring, too. You know? Maybe they were trying to separate themselves. But that's a whole other discussion I could go on for minutes on. Instead, I'll go on for minutes on um, my last individual pick, number nine, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, previously mentioned uh, from 1982. It is available on Amazon Prime and Hulu. This is widely considered the best Star Trek film ever for a lot of reasons. There's, there's humor in this film, but it also takes its time. It has a, a methodical pace to it. It's very character-driven. I want to say William Shatner, but it's uh, Captain Kirk is reaching middle age. He's got a birthday in the beginning of the film, and so there's some there's some discussion and thought about thoughtfulness on that and you know it brings back a character from the original series that's unfortunately jj abrams series decided to play with too to mixed results of course ricardo montalban's con scene is one of the most iconic villains in sci-fi and uh it's got great great score it's great direction by Nicholas Meyer. Shanna, it didn't quite make your list, mostly because you hadn't seen it recently enough to remember much about it. But it's definitely one worth revisiting if it has been a long time since anybody has seen it. And you could do so on Prime and Hulu. That's Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, one of my absolute favorite Star Trek films. And one of the best. All right, Shanna, so now we're starting to get where we came together 
on our list. So why don't you get us started with the next couple picks here. Number eight is The World According to Garp, and that is from 82. This movie was such a surprise to me. It's a very strange, wonderful story. We get to see the different stages of life. This mom is so awesome and not an emotional over or even reactor at all to life or anything that's happening with her son. She just keeps steady and carries on. It's just it's another mom that would make my list. She's very progressive you know? too. Yeah, she's worth noting. Like totally overly progressive in some sense. <laughs> uh, given that it was in 82. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. But then you know, a couple year, a couple years pass, and her son is now a father, uh, Robin Williams, and he has this huge emotional outburst from a safety thing, and it's just hilarious because the whole movie we've been going through very calm, collective people, mm. very logical people, and then all of a sudden there's a huge emotional outburst, which was really fun to watch. He feels very deeply Robin Williams's character, and that's really lovely to watch as he's that he going. Feels. That he feels so much, mm. and this is also happening parallel to the women's liberation movement, and so we see several kinds of feminists and movements associated with it uh, in response to it as well. And I really loved John Lithgow's performance in this. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I'm glad I love, you mentioned him. I love that man so much. I mm. will watch anything he does. Early role for him as a trans yes. person, which was, I mean, this film was greatly progressive for, mm-hmm. for its time, way ahead of its time. Glenn Close made her debut as, as the mother. As Garp's mother, yeah. Yep. And I think they were only a few years apart, actually, Robin Williams and, and Glenn Close, which is interesting. But that always a, happens to women in media. A very solid, early, dramatic performance by Robin Williams as well. Uh, too. People forget that he was theater trained. He was trained as an actor, not a comedian. Yeah, it's a pretty good film. It was interesting uh, going back and checking that one out. Our next one is also available to stream. It's on Hulu. Flashdance from 83. This is about the real story about Jennifer Beals and her love of dance. She is completely surrounded and engrossed and takes in anything dance related and is therefore self-taught. She is amazing in her technique and fights through her own obstacles. So we had spoken about Dare to be Wild. She didn't have personal obstacles. It was outer obstacles. Yeah. In Flashdance, it's personal obstacles. Am I good enough? Yeah. To accomplish admission to a prestige, prestigious school of dance. We see beautiful cinematography and lighting. This film is truly 80s with its lighting effects, color gels, a little bit of blue here, a little bit of cool, like, like red over there, some orange even. If you ever wanted to know what the 80s looked like, go watch this film and you'll get a visual sense of what it looked like. Yeah, you know, and, and point of clarity, it is a, uh, based on a... Loosely based on someone's real story, but not Jennifer Beale's story. She stars oh, as the I'm name. sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. I just wanted to clarify in case anybody got confused. But um, very influential film in terms of how, uh, first of all, like so many music-based films like Footloose and Dirty Dancing kind of came kind of from Flashdance, which uh, for some reason very critically panned. It was considered style over substance and all this sort of stuff. Hey, I don't, I'm totally cool with the substance and the style. I, I don't think it's that bad of a film. I don't think it's a great film, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. And, and enough for it to also make 
my list and for it to make our combined list together. Uh, it's kind of cool. I'm very familiar with the soundtrack, and so to see the soundtrack put to life on the screen is a lot of fun. I, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a pretty fun, fun, you know, very 80s movie, you know? So check it out on Hulu. Okay, so we're at the halfway mark of our list. Number six is The Twilight Zone, the movie which is an anthology film with pieces by John Landis, Joe Dante, Steven Spielberg, and George Miller of Mad Max fame. You know, this is a film where, like most anthology films, not all of the pieces are as good as others. You know, there's, there's bound to be one or two kind of weaker elements. But apparently most of them are remakes of old twilight zone episodes some of them i'm i haven't seen so this is the only version of them i've ever seen but it's got an incredible cast throughout the whole thing you have john lithgow dan Aykroyd, let's see albert brooks kathleen a very young kathleen quinlan Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Cartwright, very young Nancy Cartwright of, of Simpsons fame, Dick Miller, Bill Mummy, so many people in this. And I think it's it's kind of mixed results, I think, and that's one, one of a few reasons why people don't talk about it that much. But, you know, there are segments in it that I really like. I like the Steven Spielberg segment of the old people. I like... The opening with Dan Aykroyd and Alvaro Brooks, which actually references TV themes and references the Twilight Zone theme, which is pretty cool. And John Lithgow does a pretty darn good job of adapting uh, the terror from 30,000 feet segment, too. So anyway, that's uh, Twilight Zone, the movie. It's worth checking out if you're a fan of the Twilight Zone. Uh, definitely hunt this down if you've never seen it before. Not only that, if you're a fan of uh, pop animation, you know, pop culture referenced animation like The Simpsons or Family Guy, you've probably seen these being referenced and just didn't know. Mm. And I think it's fun to go back to what it's actually based on. Definitely. All right, Shanna, why don't you talk about one of your favorite films, our number five favorite film from 1982 and 83. Our number five is Tootsie from 82. There's an actor. He can't get work. He decides to dress up as a woman to get work that way Mm -hmm. as a woman. And so he's going through life pretending to be a woman. It's kind of like Mrs. Doubtfire (laughs) in that way. And he falls in love. Never mind the fact that she thinks he's a woman. Mm -hmm. And he's seen her naked and all those things because that's what happens. And now he has to sort that out in his life. You know, it's really funny to hear this story about a guy who can't get work and has to be a woman in order to get work in this time when we hear so much about how women can't get work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and all these roles are written for men and all this sort of stuff. And it's it's a kind of an interesting irony. Uh, but a great and enjoyable film. Very well written, very funny. Very funny. I yeah. loved it. I, I do too. And there's a criterion... That is just waiting for us to get a, a <laughs> yeah. Amazon out there. Get our grubby paws on. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about our number four favorite film wow, as well. I get to talk about a lot of things today. 
Our number four is Blade Runner, of course. This is a neo-noir sci-fi. It's like two great things in one. It's from 1982. The cinematography and story are why this is on my list. Just amazing shots and it's a great mystery too. This is a world with replicants living on another planet and Blade Runners who hunt replicants that are essentially rebelling against the rules put in place by the humans. The replicants are essentially clones. They're seen as less than. It's kind of like, you know, if we made a world of robots and then it got out of hand, uh, they'd go and live on another planet kind of thing. Mm. So Harrison Ford is on the hunt for very particular replicants that have left that planet to come to Earth to search for who created them. And then you see what happens in between and next. Mm-hmm. Of course, this film is uh, greatly notable because of its visuals having influenced so much sci-fi since. And it's one of it's that period of Ridley Scott's career where he was just making really iconic and influential sci-fi films, you know, this and Aliens and or Alien, I should say. And there's another one off, I'm forgetting off the top of my head too during that time. But uh, Blade Runner is definitely one of the most memorable. All right, so our number three, we're in the top three now, Shanna, and I'm going to talk. I'm going to try to contain myself here. Uh, this is where the emotions will come. Absolutely. This this is, I think, our f- favorite film from 1982 in particular. It is E.T., The Extraterrestrial. This is absolutely my favorite film from 1982. Hands down. Rewatched it recently because you, shockingly, had never seen it. In full before. Yes, only in pieces. Um, absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> Watch the film, and good God, this film is absolutely perfect. Uh, there are a few films I have seen, of the thousands of films I've seen, that I would actually name as perfect or a masterpiece, a 10 out of 10, what have you. And E.T., The Extraterrestrial, is definitely one of them the way this thing is able to um, really capture childhood and and things from children's perspective childhood friendships and the score by john williams you know john williams has made a number of iconic scores he's one of the greatest composers of film ever hands down i always thought et's score was one of the greats no i will say it is easily one of the three greatest scores he has ever done because sometimes just having that score come on in the background in the film is enough to move me to tears. It is such extraordinary work. And the end of the film, come on, forget about it. I can't, I cannot, I cannot <laughs> keep it together. I have never seen you get so emotional during a film as with this one. Yeah, I mean, it just rarely happens in this movie. Whew, it, it's just yanking my heartstrings. It's not just pulling them. It's yanking them hard. Uh, do you have anything to add about the film? I think it's a beautiful film about family. I, th- I think it's a beautiful film about connection, too. Indeed it is. So, Shanna, why don't you tell us if that is our number three, what is our second favorite film from 1982 and 83? Is it on number two because of me? What do you mean? Because of how high I put it on my list. 
Uh, well, actually, we both had it pretty high on our oh, individual cool. list. Yeah. All right. So our number two is A Christmas Story. This takes place in the 1950s. It's always good to have a Christmas movie in, you know, in our pile. In this one, we get to all relate to that idea of, of being a kid and I want XYZ for Christmas. Mm hmm. And parents and other adults say no for whatever reason it might be. Mm -hmm. The crazy parents in this film, I just, I love them. I think they're a perfect duo. I, I love that the father swears all the darn time. And then when the kid eventually swears, it's like, where did you hear that? Right. Where do you think I heard it, mom? Where right. do you think I heard it? Yeah. And, and of course, in this time, kids aren't going to say I heard it from dad. Like you loon, um, right. you know they're gonna yeah. they're gonna blame someone else, and I I certainly ran into that as a kid, and I did say it was my father, and my mother looked at me and said, "It can't be," and I'm like, "What the fuck?" As I get older, I'm like, "Really? That was the best response you could think of." So I I love it. I the best part of this film. There's so many good parts to this film, but I think the best part is when it's finally Christmas Day and they get to unwrap all those massive presents and all that shiny gift wrap and the tinsel is everywhere. And yeah. I, I really like, I like Christmas movies like this. Yeah, so this 1983 movie is shockingly from the same director as Porky's from 1982. Oh, God. Uh, which, again, okay. was the fifth highest grossing movie of that year. It's magical. It's beautiful. You know, uh, it's, it's one of those movies, rare movies, where it changes as you age. You know, the, the way you uh, perceive the film is shaped very much by how old you are. I viewed the film differently when I was a kid from when I was an adult. And I think Melinda Dillon and Darren McGavin are amazing parents in this film. Yeah. I watch it now, specifically watching Darren McGavin and the little things that he does. <laughs> he is so great in this movie and he, he makes me laugh almost at every frame the little reactions he does off to the side you know little things it's there's so much truth and genuine there is a reality to his performance you know like we either we have been there or we've had parents that we have <laughs> we've observed those reactions to you know so yeah a christmas story is just a, it is an absolute classic it's well deserved and it's placed for as a christmas hallmark and it is our second favorite film from these two years. Our second favorite film, specifically from 1983. Shanna, do you... Well, of course you know. Our favorite film from 1983 is... Return of the Jedi. It is Return of the Jedi. This should be no surprise to anyone who's listened to the podcast, Law and Form. Uh, we are total Star Wars fans. Um, this is how I hooked him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> essentially um, i of course i actually now star wars predates you technically right like this it came out way before you were alive more or less and i whereas i was alive when two out of three of the films came out more or less and the entire phenomenon you were more or less alive well i can't remember exactly <laughs> when empire strikes back exactly came okay. out in 1980 but it came out in 1980 and i was alive in 1980 and so my childhood was very much informed by these releases you know the action figures and everything and return of the jedi i admit 
is not the best of the three films of the trilogy, but I think it is extremely underrated. It is my favorite of the three because it has so every set piece in this film is like unforgettable. Like you cannot forget Jabba's palace. You cannot forget Endor. You cannot forget even the battle on the Death Star or the battle around the Death Star. You know, there's so many things that happen in this film that are unforgettable set pieces. They're all really great. Yes, I am a defender of the Ewoks too. I love the Ewoks. I love those Ewoks. I love what um, George Lucas was going for with the Ewoks. These, this, this, this culture of that that's uh, so like lacks technology right they're so basic they're a hunting culture the fact that this is the one that's able to topple this this arrogant huge like technologically advanced empire that's great sometimes you've got to go back to basics that's beautiful i i i'm a defender of the ewoks plus they're damn cute and fucking when they die that's fucking tragic so you know now i want to cry right yeah there's actually a, a moment that actually does move me what else do I want to say? Oh, the the speaking of which, the third act, I don't think it gets enough credit. You have three different locations, three different battles happening, and it cuts between each, and you never get lost. The way that's edited and directed mm. by Richard Marquand, you see it all as one. It's you. Well, yeah, and you're able to. I think it's totally underappreciated how well that is like made coherent. I think we've seen movies where. You can't keep track of who's doing what and what's what, what's what, what's what's what. And, you know, it's it, it works so beautifully in The Return of the Jedi. I think it is a great final chapter to that trilogy. Shanna, I'll shut up for a moment so you can say <laughs> oh my God, your piece. Really? You will? Yeah. Okay. So you say that I didn't grow up with Star Wars, but I kind of did because I guess it was like a 10-year or a 15-year anniversary or something like that had happened. 1997. Okay. Yes, it was released. I guess for my 10th birthday, I had just moved to a new school. Mm -hmm. Or 11th birthday, I just moved to a new school. I I was in a girls' school, and then it was boys' and girls' school, so it was really weird for me because I was like, who is this other creature? And it was very difficult to understand. And I decided that for my birthday, we would go and watch... Star Wars, because they had re-released it in the theaters. Yes. And was that the same for you? It was, it was really, yes. Oh, okay. It was worldwide re-release, absolutely, yes. Okay, so it was really fun that it got re-released because that is how me and my brother got exposed to it. That was your first time? That was our first time, okay. was actually in the theater. And it was really cool doing it with all these people I invited to my birthday because I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. All the girls are bored sitting on the seats and I'm down there with the boys on the floor and we're like look, staring, lying on our backs, looking up at the, the screen. Nice. And it was a, a really fun experience. And that was... How I got people to like me was through Star Wars. So, um, so one interesting thing about that is mm-hmm. that means that your first exposure to Star Wars was the special edition versions, not the original yeah. versions. Yeah, I guess so. So, at what point did you see the original version, and what were your reactions? I must to have seen the original version with you. Oh, <gasps> um, and because I don't, I don't think I was aware. Holy and shit. I, th- I remember looking at 
you know, watching it with you and I was like, something's not right. Something's missing. <laughs> I really? didn't grow up with this. So, uh, I so guess. So you grew up embracing the special because edition. Because the thing is, then they, re- they re-released the VHS, right? And you got that nice box kit of the three the VHSs. Uh, that might have been a little bit before, but yes, okay. that did happen around the time. Well, it got to us at that time. Okay. And uh, Jared got that, my brother got that for Christmas mm. and I would... I would always come into the room when it was my favorite parts. And if it wasn't, then I would just leave the room and go and watch a Disney movie. And then he would call me, you know. And Is I'd... that the version that was the original version that you're talking about? The no, box set? I, th- I think it was. Okay. My confusion. Um, so, yes, there was a special edition box set that came out that was gold. That That is the time that you're talking about. I initially, my mind initially went to the THX box set that came out before that so you had missed that version you had seen the special edition version box set too so yeah, yeah. i think we got this one that's the thx one that oh, i'm talking okay. about okay yeah that's the one that's the original version well it might have been and that's the, the special edition that's the gold one. Oh, okay she's looking on her website we must have her... gotten the gold one yeah so i remember it being very display worthy <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, look nice. Yeah. Anyway, so we're carrying on because we can do that very easily with Star Wars. So Return of the Jedi, our favorite film from 82 and 83. But why don't you carry on? I mean, we've carried on for six minutes about this movie. Why don't you uh, send us an email? Carry on about your favorite film from 1982-83. Was it one of the award winners or was it one of the ones we picked? There was a couple, I will say really quickly. Uh, Shannon, you got on the list everything that was was on your list. You have no regrets. Nothing got trimmed out. For me, I had a complete list before we had to merge, and there was just a few that got left on the cutting room table. Uh, that's kind of regrets for me. First of all, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, 1982. I was surprised that didn't make your list. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Only because I hadn't seen it recently. Ah, gotcha. Less surprising, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. I know you're not a big fan of that film. The dog dies, guys. I love that film. Uh, Gandhi, one of the most inspirational films I've ever seen. Love that film. Poltergeist, 1982. Great film. I actually kind of enjoyed Mr. Mom from 1983 with Michael Keaton. Rewatched that. That was a laugh out loud film. Didn't offend me nearly as much as I expected to. And The Dead Zone. Uh, Dead Zone from 1983, really solid uh, Stephen King film, the better Stephen King film from that year. Carpenter came out with Christine, not so great a film. The Dead Zone is really awesome, very politically relevant, surprisingly, to today. And then finally, Trading Places, also uh, from 1983. So, But yeah, email us your favorites, gibsonreview at gmail.com. That is going to do it for us in this episode of The Movie Lovers. Before we talk about the next episode, Shanna, why don't you share with them where they can find you on the internet? You can find me at Shanna underscore Paxton on Instagram, S-H-A-N-N-A underscore P-A-X-T-O-N. Awesome. So check us out at thegibsonreview.com. That's where all the articles, all the reviews in the past, all the episodes, everything can be found. You can also follow us on social media, the uh, Facebook, The Gibson Review on Instagram, the Gibson 99. Go to Flickchart, the Gibson 99, to follow me and all the films I've seen on there. That's actually a huge source for me in making a lot of these lists so I don't forget films. 
Also, you can throw us some uh, a dollar bill or two at PayPal. Just uh, send it to thegibsonreview at gmail.com. We appreciate that very much. Uh, helps us pay for the podcast, the movie going services, everything, basically, the website. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll give you a shout out if we notice a donation on Facebook. Anything I'm forgetting, Shanna? I don't think so. All right. So, oh, oh next time. Next time. On? on the movie lovers yes we are going to have a lot of fun it's going to be our f-rated movies of the decade you're wrong oh you're wrong God that's coming damn it that's a future episode i really want that episode now <laughs> yeah no that's coming the next episode actually is, is it's, it it's time 80s? no what we have Shh. <laughs> let me tell you let me tell you it is the fall movie preview it is time to do another movie preview we gotta look ahead at the movies coming up in the next three months september October, November, we will be doing that in the next episode. Fall movie preview. I think we will probably um, go without a film faves segment for that episode. So we're going to put off. Um, she is she is excited. She is right because the next film phase we will be doing is F-rated films of the decade. We'll talk more about that, though, later. But you should be expecting this episode of The Movie Lovers uh, coming out what, 9-6, September 6th, I believe, sometime around Labor Day, or just after Labor Day. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff Ashana saying bye-bye.